Well, something tells me it's time for another episode of Put on a Stack of 45s featuring the Splendid Bohemians. The Splendid Bohemians are Bill Mesnick in California. Bill, how you doing, baby? I am I am well. I am ready to attack this interesting subject that you have lined up for us. Thank you, my so friend. So let's hit it. You're you're propelled. You're ready to uh you're activated. You're ready to go. I'm I I you're you are one of the enchanters. Oh, you're t- see something, <laughs> but uh, you know, sometimes uh, enchant the enchanting find themselves crying. You know what I mean, baby? Mm-hmm. And yep. uh, that was the story with uh, one of Rich Buckland's favorite artists. Um, just let me give you the quote before I even mention his name or the record we're going to talk about. I kind of gave it away, but. A gentleman named Steve Huey, who writes for a uh, for an online, does online reviews, and many many years ago, wrote something about this artist, Mr. Garnet Mims, stating his pleading gospel-derived intensity made him one of the earliest true soul singers, and his legacy remains criminally underappreciated. And we want to address that. We want to address that. Now, we did it in our very first episode in a similar fashion with Mr. James Carr, didn't we not? Yeah. yeah. There was another gentleman, dark end of the street, uh, yes. with a little too much Otis in his voice. and um, But there was something intrinsic about what he did that nobody else did. I feel the same way about Garnet Mims, and particularly the record that brought him into... Uh, uh, into the spotlight, which is called Cry Baby. Cry Baby, uh, written by Burt Burns and Jerry Ragavoy. Now, what are we, now, we're talking about Jerry Ragavoy. We're talking about, once again, one of the great songwriters of the, uh, of the 60s. And, of course, when we talk about Burt Burns, we have done an episode on Burt Burns. Um, and Burt Burns' legacy is filled with an amazing... With a, an amazing catalog of tunes uh, from Twist and Shout uh, all the way through uh, Van Morrison, uh, Van Morrison's, the production of Van Morrison's Brown Eyed Girl. So this was one of the great writers, one of the great producers, and understood this gospel intensity in Mr. Garnet Mims. Garnet Mims, who is, I think he just suggested he's in his 80s, right? He's 87? He is 87 years old. He's a born-again minister, uh, which he actually left the business in the 1980s. Um, But I just want to just retrace a little bit of what you were saying about Burns and Ragavoy working with Garnett Mims. And uh, someone had pointed out that this partnership was an experiment which combined gospel soul with the new uptown soul that was in vague, vogue at the time in New York City. And, you know, these guys 
were able to uh, to find some of these artists like the Jarmels, who we discussed before, and create classic uh, hits with them that remain, uh, you know, all-time greats. Well, Garnett Mims also recorded a version of a little bit of soap. Uh, he did, and that I I found that really uh, it made sense and it was interesting. Um, and then later, uh, three years later, in '66, Burns and Ragavoy produced uh, a follow-up hit for Garnett called "I'll Take Good Care of You." And in '65 as well, a great song called "It Was Easier to Hurt Her." Give her some hard times, treat her mean, that's what all the guys say. It'll only make her love you more, but it just don't go down that way. Which I think is, is, is an unreal. And a crybaby, the backup singers were uh, Dionne Warwick and her sister Dee Dee Warwick. The Gospelaires, they were known as the Gospelaires. You had the Gospelaires. You had nothing, there was no shortage of talent available for these sessions. Uh, back in the day, uh, you got the job, you showed up, and that was your living. You couldn't do it. You, you couldn't do it from home. Uh, you, could, you couldn't call it in. And uh, these people worked hard. And I think it's the difference between um, people learning their craft back then and uh, learning it on the job quite quite often. Uh, and also, uh, Garnett was, became a favorite in the Northern Soul movement. Well, so many of those black artists did, because those records made their way to the UK, and you know the Northern Soul story. I mean, there wasn't really any room for them here anymore. So you would take some of those productions and you would, um, you know, add some Northern Soul arrangements and re-record them Uh I think what it is in 1977 would really be considered the main Northern Soul uh, recording that Garnet Mims is known for. The group was Garnet Mims and the Truckin' Company. <laughs> what it is, what it is. So he was looking for a uh, looking for another. You know, a decade later, he's looking for another route. But and Garnet was covered by Hendrix and Led Zeppelin. Well, you know, first of all, I think his my baby. Yeah, but here's here. But so here's the problem. So, and it's it's an age old problem, and it's been spoken about many many times from the uh, Presley legacy all the way through the '60s. Um, for the Garnett Mims record to have not now, I remember the very first time I heard that recording. And I remember the first time I heard the Joplin recording. 1971. 1971. So how many years difference are we talking about between the time I'm first hearing this piece of magnificence from Garnet Mims? We're talking about nine years, right? Mm-hmm. Okay. Then it takes to 71 for that song to gain any attention. And he still is not given the credit for the originator of this vocal styling because Janice of course would, would eclipse everything
I oh, but it, it it was it foreshadowed this notion of how much of this music was co-opted by our generation, and how little of it was given credit. Right. That's why you have to really give uh, have have to applaud the Rolling Stones for their blues roots and their consistently talking about those artists, about Muddy Waters, about Howlin' Wolf. Um, yeah, and those English kids, they were appalled that Americans did not know their own artists. And that's, I guess, the piece of the puzzle that makes it kind of confusing, right? There's a confusion as to why, particularly as the civil rights movement is, is, is etching forward, uh, and we're beginning to develop the social consciousness, when it comes to music, we have accepted the Caucasian dynamic beyond anything else because it was amped up, it was electrified, and I think it also went into the drug realm. So a guy like Arnett Mims, his entire gift is put on a back burner and even when there's a revival of his most famous song, he still does not have the ability to be able to, to profit from that in any considerable mm. fashion. Um, mm. you right, were, because uh, Burns and Ragavoy had the uh, publishing. The publishing, and you know, he was just... It was know, their song. And Garnet Mims was just another of those greatest singers that ever lived. So what does what he matter? <laughs> you know, what does he matter? He, does, he doesn't really matter. Ah, greatest singers, these are a dime a dozen. They're a dime a dozen, and that really was the attitude of a lot of the writers and producers of the day, going back to Alan Freed, who puts his, has the nerve to put, you know, with Chuck Berry's consent, has his name added to Maybelline so he can get 50% of the royalties as he's spinning the record. Um, you make deals with the devil in, in that business. But um, it seems a lot more deals were made with black artists of that nature than were made with, with white artists. Um, not that there weren't white artists starving as well as a result of, of, of what they did. And if you read the Tommy James book... The, right, know. and Robbie Robertson, right, talking about, uh, you know, uh, Morris Levy putting his name on his songs and yeah. and uh, yeah. and Ronnie Hawkins going you don't want to question that. <laughs> well, exactly. You had a murderous crew there. You had a murderous yeah. a, a a murderous bunch. And of course Burt Burns uh who was producing Garnet Mims and so many other fabulous artists is all mobbed up, you know. And yeah. his story is legendary in that he had a heart ailment and he didn't have a long time to live. He knew it, and he had to get as much work done as he could. And Crybaby is right within that. Uh, it's right within that time period where he's attempting to make some moves that nobody else was making and experimenting in a manner I don't think anybody else was really experimenting in. So, it's a tribute to Garnett Mims. It's a tribute to Burt Burns, who puts him on wax and enables him to be able to. Uh, to get some popularity. And you were talking about the show The Beat out of Dallas. Oh, yes. Let's talk about The Beat. Because you take a, you try to find live performances of some of these artists, uh, like a general, uh, 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 someone like Billy Stewart, who we just did a, uh, a show on. There's no live, there's no live uh, video of Billy Stewart. You've got a couple of clips from Dick Clark's Where the Action Is, where he's singing where he's on, the, on yeah. the beach. Right. Um, 
So there was a show out of Dallas called The Beat, and they would present live performances by artists like uh, like Garnet Mims, and um, who was the young woman that you were just uh, talking about? Barbara Lynn. Barbara Lynn. You got a good thing. Yeah. Right. You got a good thing. So fascinated by her guitar technique. Well, she, yeah. Well, she did. There were very few women who were who were picking up. Uh, those, those yeah, that Sister Rosetta Tharp thing. Yeah, on. yes, yes. And so you, you take a look at this show out of uh, out of Dallas, early '60s. One season it lasts. It's in color, and uh, they pulled out the stops and presented so many great black artists from Etta James, uh, Esther Phillips, uh, the Johnny Taylor cut. Kills me. Otis Redding. Fantastic. Well, they break. Otis had already gotten plenty of exposure, but the fact that yes. he shows up and he hosts the show that also has Freddie King and Percy Sledge says yeah. says a great deal. And that show, by the way, was the very last show of that series. And you will you've find got that it. stuff up on. Uh, you'll on find Dig it this. on our Dig This website. Not? Yes, absolutely. That entire show is up there, as well as some other clips from uh, from the beach. But, um, yeah, see, that's also criminally negligent in my estimation that so many of these artists were, went uh, without having any live performances recorded. So uh, there's a way to discover something that you may not have discovered. Even with someone like Freddie King, who later on, after his uh, connection with Grand Funk Railroad and touring with them, got a lot of publicity. But prior to that, who the hell knew who Freddie King was? He was, right, he, right. He was another king. I discovered him when he was on uh, Leon Russell's label. Well, and that's what it took, didn't it? And I guess yeah. that's part of the point. Part of the point is it took white artists on, an, on a label that yeah. enabled for that kind of distribution. Uh, and that's when you first hear this unbelievable sound, this mournful sound of Freddie King. And uh, I was living in California at the time, and had the ability to go to the Great Ash Grove, a club that where I saw Kaleidoscope. I don't, I don't know how many people got to see the band Kaleidoscope live, but you could see Kaleidoscope, the Reverend Gary Davis, the Birds. <laughs> so you could get to see so many people, including Freddie King. And uh, yeah, boo, 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 boo. And, um, do, do, do the intro into the record. 
Of course. So, but you know what? I think it's time for us to to play a little Garnet Mims because I think we've been we've 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 spoken enough about the genius of this man. It is time for you to listen to the original, the original version. So I, I heard Janice sing it at Woodstock, and uh, I can tell you it certainly didn't have that raw emotional appeal that uh, it seemed to provide others with. I just thought it was too over the top. But this is pitch and picture perfect. I get every nuance, every fatality 
that that's existent in this record, and all of the nobility of love, which I think is something Burt Burns was uh, gifted with in uh, attempting to deliver to us. Well said. Uh, it's the poet in me, Bill. It's the poet in yeah. me. The poet's, it's always there. The poet's, it's always there. It, thank you so much. It doesn't matter how old one gets, but the poet remains. So, Mr. Garnett Mims, we, we thank you, and we thank Mr. Burt Burns, Jerry Ragavoy, Dion Warwick, all of the creators back in a day when you put in the work and you got some magnificent results. And they call that experimental, but uh, interesting how long it took for gospel music to be able to make its way into the mainstream and not be called a race record. Yeah, right. Right? So on that, on, on that note of deliverance, I will thank you, Bill Mesnick. I will thank you for another... And thank you. And thank you. It's good to have you back. It's good to have you back. And it's good for both of us to be back and to be, to be here to be able to share that which is still enchanting, as was Mr. Garnet Mims and the Enchanters. And the Let's not forget them. We're not going to forget them. Bill, I love you, baby. We'll talk soon. All right. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.